1 John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at it. But before we get there, I wanted to tell you something that uh, caught my eye this week. I often go to SPU to use their library free books, right? And um, on the wall, as I'm walking up the steps to the library, if you've ever been there, uh, written in chalk art was this statement. Your feelings are valid. Now, I know why that's written because uh, it was a year ago on the 5th, or was it two years ago? A year ago on the 5th that uh, the shootings happened at SPU. And so I understand the sentiment. So it's less about what the SPU community was trying to say and more about what it triggered in me. And I asked myself the question, is that statement true? And I'm thinking it from the standpoint of all feelings all at all times are valid. Is that true? Now the thing we must remember is that the word valid, or at least the thing that popped to my head is, uh, maybe valid's not the right word. Valid is an adjective and it means, and it's often used um, in the form of, uh, in talking about an argument, whether an argument is valid or whether it's a valid point. That's that's the way it's used most often. And it means having a sound basis in logic or fact. Is it reasonable or cogent? Some other synonyms would be well-founded, sound, reasonable, rational, logical, justifiable, defensible, viable, or bona fide. So the question is, are all feelings at all times valid? And I started to wrestle with that. At first, I thought, yes. I like that, but then I realized, I don't know if that's actually true. Now, here's the quintessential example, at least in my mind, of why I'm not sure that is true. You see, we live in an age, we live in a country which wants to accept without question any and all feelings, any and all spirits as equally valid and representative of truth. But sound or logical statements or things uh, must be true in the same way at all times and all places. It's the law of non-contradiction. Basically, A cannot be both A and non-A at the same time and in the same way. And so there's feelings that people have had over the centuries that don't match up with feelings of others. Here's the best example. Nazi Germany. People legitimately had feelings of hate and anger and despise towards Jews and other minorities. Legit I mean, these were real feelings that they had. And the question that we have to ask is, were those feelings valid? I don't think those feelings were valid. Now, in Germany at that time, there were people that had stronger feelings than others. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that millions upon millions of people had the wrong feelings towards Jews, minorities, and others, even if their feeling was one of indifference, that they didn't care what was going on. They didn't particularly hate or despise Jews, but 
They were indifferent to what was happening to them. Are those feelings valid? Was the spirit that was present in the people and the nation of Germany during that time valid? I think, I think if we're honest and fair, we'd all say, no, those feelings were not valid. Nor would they have been valid had Hitler won and tried to convince everybody around the world that Jews were detestable. So, should we, if we were living in that time, simply respect, accept, or adopt those invalid mindsets or feelings towards the Jews and other minorities? I would say no, I hope no, and the sad fact is is that thousands upon thousands of true Christians did just that. They didn't call it what it was, wrong, invalid, evil. So what's my point? I don't think all feelings are valid. I don't think all feelings are worthy to be accepted. I don't think the prevailing spirit of the age should not be challenged. Or better, maybe say, remain unchallenged. So now, don't hear this when you hear me say this. I'm not saying that, fe- that, that, that feelings matter. In fact, I would just change the statement and I would say all feelings at all times matter. I just don't think all feelings at all time are valid. Okay? They matter, but they're not valid. There's a difference, but I think we've gotten it wrong. So we'll see today the Apostle John, one of the disciples who walked closest with Jesus He was one of his closest confidants. He was one of the pillars of the early church, wrote a large chunk of the New Testament. He tells us unequivocally that we must not accept every spirit. In fact, what we're supposed to do is test the spirits and divide the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. So we're going to look at that today. So if you're not there already, turn to 1 John chapter 4. All the way in the back of the Bible. Won't be many pages left as you turn there. If you're looking it up on your phone, no problem. If you don't uh, have the Bible on your phone, I'd suggest uh, it's called the Holy Bible. You can look it up in the App Store. It's a great resource to have. So 1 John chapter 4 says this. Beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know, that the Spirit of God, every spirit, sorry, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. 
Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Father God, we pray tonight that we would be speaking from you, from your word, Lord, that your spirit would be in this place, that it would open our eyes to see the truth of this passage, the truth as it pertains today to the spirit of our age. Lord, let's be honest tonight. Make us honest. Make us honest people who are fair with you and fair with the truth. Help us to not turn off our ears, but to turn them on that we might hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. What is John saying here? The first point I want to make is this, right? In verse 1, beloved, do not believe. How many times have you heard that from church? Do not believe. I think that there's a spirit um, of error in how we view what it means to be a Christian. Uh, rightly so. We often use this term believer. We call one another, are you a believer? Is he a believer? Is she a believer? Now, I don't think that's misrepresenting because often in Scripture, that same term or terms similar are used. Terms like believers, the believers, they that believe, they that are believing. So it's used over and over again. But I think the reason that it's been misunderstood is that when the biblical writers are using the term, they are using it as shorthand for something more than just believers. They're using it to refer back to statements like this that say, you must believe and confess that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, God the Son, come in the flesh. So when they would say the believers, what's implied, because they're speaking within the Christian community, is just that, much more than just the believers. So I think we sometimes misrepresent ourselves or often misrepresent when we blindly accept or use this title in an unqualified way, believer. And I'm specifically speaking when we use this title outside of the Christian community because people aren't sure what we mean. So what do we mean? Well, we mean a lot when we say believer, and what we mean matters greatly. In fact, it's a prof of, of profound importance for Christians what we believe, not just that we're believers. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Eric Hoffer or his uh, book in 1951. It was called The True Believer. And basically what the book was about was looking at all the different major uh, movements throughout history, whether that's religious, including Christianity, um, communism uh, would be an example. Other movements could be put into this category like the Tea Party or Occupy Wall Street. And, and basically, uh, these of course came after his time, but the things that he talked about in his, in his book uh, could relate to them. And his basic thesis was this, that there is a type of person who becomes a true believer in something. And he made the case that those kind of people, uh, they'll believe something whether or not they really know what it is and they just want something uh, to believe in and uh, they're just looking for something. Uh, so Hoffer writes this, if a doctrine is not uh, in, 
is not unintelligible. It has to be vague. Uh, excuse me, let me set this up. He writes about, in these type of movements, their view towards the doctrine of the movement, meaning the beliefs or the message of the movement. And he writes, if a doctrine is not unintelligible, it has to be vague. And if it's neither unintelligible nor vague, it has to be unverifiable. Unverif and his main point is this. Movements like this do better if you don't actually know what the true message is. And what he goes on and he does is he lumps Christianity into that category. Now, is this true of Christians? That it's better to not actually know what we believe than what we believe? I'd say that's untrue. I'd say that Christians aren't just wired to be true believers and then we happen to stumble into this thing called Christianity and so that's the thing that we decide to raise the flag for but it really doesn't matter what we believe as long as we get to believe something with our whole heart. I'd say that's not true. But we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we don't fall into this type of stereotype that Hoffer writes about. And the reason we should never fall into that is because of passages like this which tell us, do not believe. You see, we talk so much as Christians about what we do believe, and we probably need to talk about it more and clarify it more and be more clear about what we actually mean when we say we believe. But what's interesting is that John says in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe. And what does he say? Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So, I love that, that John is telling us do not believe. I love it because we're not blind believers. We are discerning believers who look for truth and try to find it. So if we believe what John writes what he writes in verse 2, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, what are we actually affirming? So to believe what John uh, has written and what he's written about both in his gospel and here in this letter is that there is a God. That God is not silent nor removed from our human earthly situation. That God's intentions are for us and not against us. Otherwise, why would he send his son into the world? That God is not against flesh, that is materiality. That flesh is not inherently evil and the soul only good. Both are from God. Otherwise, why would Christ take on flesh? That flesh is redeemable as it was created good by God. Otherwise, what is Christ taking on? That Jesus is utterly unique and himself the second person of God. He is God. That's what John's saying. If we confess that, we are from God. Now, for that last point, if you weren't here when we talked about um, a similar topic here back in chapter uh, 2, uh, there's a sermon online you can listen to called Confess that talks more specifically about how we can know that what John is saying is that Jesus is God. Come in the flesh. So go back and listen to that if 
you were not here. So, now, to believe one thing is, ne- uh, is necessarily to disbelieve something else. To believe one thing is necessarily to disbelieve something else. In fact, our unbelief can sometimes be um, a much more accurate portrayal or mark of our maturity, our spiritual maturity, than even that of belief. Why do I say that? Because anybody can just say, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. Somebody throws something new at them, oh, I believe that too. But what you do not believe, your unbelief, actually can be a greater mark of your maturity in Christ, even than belief. So in this letter, John makes uh, this truth apparent in a number of ways. For example, uh, he tells us to love one another. He says that we are to love the ways of Christ. But then he says, but do not love the ways of the world. You see, you can't both love the ways of Christ and the ways of the world. We talked about that several weeks ago. That's also in chapter 2. So, what is it to not believe or disbelieve in John's statement here about Christ? So if I believe Christ, Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, what must I disbelieve? I do not believe that Jesus was created by God. I do not believe that Jesus was only a prophet and nothing more. I do not believe God has left us to figure out this whole darn thing on our own. I do not believe that salvation is essentially initiated by me, up to me, or because of me as a human being. And I do not believe that our soul is something of value and our body not. Those are things I do not believe. Furthermore, here's some things that I wish non-Christians knew about me as a Christian and other Christians that we did not believe. I believe, uh, I wish people knew that we don't believe that we are superior to anyone intellectually or morally. I wish people knew that we do not believe that our moral superiority saves us. I wish people knew that we do not hate homosexuals, that we do not hate people of other religions, that we do not hate anyone. I wish people knew this. I wish people knew that we do believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh in order to provide a way through our sinfulness, through our fallenness, through our religion, and on the other side of it is renewed relationship with God, Redemption of all things, all things materially, all things sexually, all things individually, and all things communally. That's what I wish. You see, it's not just what we believe, it's what we do not believe. And I wish people knew some of those things as well. So we need to get clear on both sides. So to be a Christian believer is not just to be generally a believer. But it's to be very, very concerned with getting it right, being very specific about the truth, about who God is, and testing every spirit that says something different than what we've been taught here in the Word of God. We must test it. And here in in chapter 4, we see three types of spirits that John tells us to test amongst. 
The first we see is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the divine third person of the Godhead. The Spirit is a, is a personal force, not an impersonal force. It's not like Star Wars. He's fully personal in the same way that the other two uh, persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, are personal. He possesses all the attributes of deity, including eternality, omnipresence, meaning he's not bound by space, omniscience, he has all knowledge, omnipotence, he has all power. Therefore, the Spirit is co-equal in, in essence with Father and Son. That's the Holy Spirit. He was active in creation. He was active in inspiring the spoken words of the prophets in the Old Testament. He was active in the incarnation of Jesus in the Virgin Mary. He was active in the inspiration of the writing of the New Testament by the apostles and those close to them. And he continued to empower the apostles in the early church. You read that in the book of Acts. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of God that John talks about here. He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. He draws us into repentance and faith. He regenerates us upon us accepting and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. We are born anew. Now in Christ, the Spirit seals believers and continues to work in them until the Lord's work is done and Christ returns. He is intimately involved in the process of transformation and sanctification. He is active in the church, giving spiritual gifts to all of us and asking us to use them. And finally, John tells us that the Spirit reveals to us truth and exposes error, exposes false spirits. I believe he's actually in this room right now, empowering me, helping us to hear and discern whether this teaching is from the Lord or not. And he's been doing it for thousands of years. That's the first spirit. The second spirit are spirits of the world. That's what I'm calling them, spirits of the world. These would be real things, and, they're, and these things are fallen angels. And they're immaterial, so they're, you can't touch them or feel them or see them. They're spiritual, but they're personal beings. They were created in a similar way to which we are created. We don't know exactly when, but sometime in the creation of the heavens and the earth. And they chose at some time in the past to rebel against God in a similar way in which we choose to rebel against God, to serve themselves rather than their creator. And we don't know a ton about how they work exactly, but we know that they're rebellious and they're for anything that opposes God. God the Father, God the Son, and of course, God the Spirit. And the devil is one of them. The devil is not some alternate God. He's just one of these spirits of the world. He just happens to be the most powerful, the leader, the most wicked. If you want a good book that tries to help us understand how the spirits of the world work against us and against God, read 
C.S. Lewis's The Screw Tape Letters. It's an excellent, an excellent and readable fictional story that helps us understand how they might work in the world. Those are the spirits of the world, and they're real, and we can't ignore them. We're not obsessed with them. We, can't not, we cannot blame them for everything that goes wrong because, John says, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So they're not more powerful than God, but they're real and they're powerful and they do damage. The third category I'm calling the spirit of our age. And this third category is undoubtedly inspired by personal spiritual beings, category two. And they expose the agenda of category two in lots of ways. But I call this category the spirit of our age, and this is an impersonal spirit. This is not a personal spirit, but it's an impersonal spirit, like the one you see in Nazi Germany that just sort of becomes a part of the ethos of a culture, and it becomes equally as powerful. And in some ways, it's the easiest to speak about or against because we can see it. We can see it happening and affecting our world. We see it where, where the other spirits are unseen. So the spirit of our age, I think, is a combination of spiritual forces mixed with effects of the fall uh, generally in the world and specifically in our fallen nature as human beings. And so it all comes together and it creates what I call the spirit of the age, an impersonal but powerful spirit in any age, particularly powerful, I'd say, right now in our country, in this place, in our city this uh, affects the prevailing philosophical underpinnings of a society, what we believe about how we can know things, what we believe about what we can know, what we believe about humanity and identity, what we believe about our purpose, our meaning, why we are even here. So it affects all of that and it creates a spirit of the age and it's broadcast far and wide over the airwaves through media, through pens and cameras, artists, filmmakers, published in newspapers, magazines and online. And I think this was all on the front of my heart this week as uh, the Vanity Fair article with uh, Caitlyn Jenner, formerly known as Bruce, was published. And we were confronted with the question of what do we make of someone like Bruce Jenner who has decided to uh, become known as Caitlyn Jenner, a woman, once a man, now a woman, what do we do? And the media outlets tended to, it seemed to me, portray something of the heroic nature of this transformation, uh, not asking a lot of questions of it, but simply seeing uh, what was definitely a difficult and courageous act and simply identifying it as heroic. But we have to ask the question, is it? I'm not going to answer that question for us. I'm just going to help us learn how to process and discern through those types of questions because it's not the last. It's not the last. That's the spirit of our age. So the spirits of the world and the spirit of our age begs us to accept them and their teaching as truth they want us to buy what they're selling, but here's the deal. Both the spirit of the world, the spirits of the world and the spirit of our age, they don't want us to ask questions. 
They don't want to be tested. They don't want to be put on trial. They just want you to just accept it. So, here's the three spirits. I think active in in this text that John is uh, drawing out. And John says this, test the spirits. Why do we test things? Because we want to find the true substance behind the rhetoric. So like, I'm a big fan of premarital counseling. Why do we do premarital counseling? The world would ask that question. Shouldn't you just not stir the pot before the marriage happens? No, that's the reason we stir the pot is because we want to expose the truth to make sure this is a good thing. Why do we need to look under the hood of an automobile before buying it? Just accept it. You don't need to look at the hood. I swear there's an engine in there and it runs really well. I've never hit a tree with this car. Stop asking so many questions. Do you really need to get an inspection on that house before closing? Do you really need to audit my financial statements before you buy my business? Those who fear testing are most to be feared. School tests never bothered me much when I knew I had studied well. Your own murder trial shouldn't really get you that nervous if you didn't kill anyone. Tests separate the few from the many. Tests allow us to place ourselves within what can oftentimes be a confusing world. Tests shed light on dark places. Those who fear testing are most to be feared. The spirits of the world and the spirit of our age, they don't want to be tested. They just want to be accepted as is. Stop asking so many questions. So, how do we test the spirits? One, we have to understand how they work. So here's how spirits work. Whether it's the spirit of God, the spirits of the world, or the spirit of our age. This is how they work. This is how they work. They find some sort of a human communicator. Because they need somebody to deliver their message. So they find a communicator. We call those teachers, preachers, public figures. They, they take lots of forms, but they need some... Even the, word, even, even the Spirit of God needs human communicators. And they take the truths uh, that the spirits are telling them, whether they're truth or not, they take them and they begin to teach and communicate these truths to others. That's the way spirits work and how they move a society, a culture, a family, or people. Now, particularly in the realm of theological, theological truth, or religion, or morality, lots of times we uh, call these teachers or communicators prophets. And so we see Paul talking about prophets here in verse 1. For many uh, false prophets have gone out into the world. So how do we test the spirits? We've got to understand how they work. They need a prophet. Two, we have to admit that not all prophets are from God. How do we know this? Again, the law of non-contradiction. John talks about it right here. You hear him say several times the term from God. He says, we are from God. In, in verse uh, 6, we are from God, and he says to the people in his congregation, you are from God, and then he asks the question, 
There is a spirit who is from God. And if we're from God and the spirit's from God and you're from God and there's another group of people that are teaching something different, communicating something different, how can they too be from God? Again, it can't be both Jesus is God and Jesus is not God. It can't be both Jesus came in the flesh and Jesus appeared to have come in the flesh. It's either one or the other. And John is pointing that out. We can't both be from God, but we're teaching two different messages. So one of these truths is from God and one is not. And so what does he say? Test them. Test them. And John's not afraid. He says, test them. And last week we talked about one of the tests is, do they love one another? We love you so much. And that's one of the tests to knowing, are you from God? So this isn't a new problem. You just read the Old Testament and you see that not every prophet is from God. Even if, and all prophets claim this, they are from God. So I'm very aware that you should be asking the question of me. I'm not saying I'm a prophet, but I'm a teacher and a communicator. Is the message Davis preaching from God? We should be asking this um, of all the communicators of truth. Are they from God? And in the Old Testament, there was a serious problem. In fact, my favorite story is the story of Elijah. And he goes up to Mount Carmel, and uh, there's 450 prophets of Baal, a competing god. It's, it's Elijah and 450 dudes who all say they hear from God. And it's great. So Elijah, he's just a bad mama jama. And he says, um, well, let's have a test. He says, you get an offering ready, and I'll get an offering ready, and we'll call upon our gods, and we'll see whose God is real and whose is not. And uh, the best part about Elijah is he just wants to show off, so he's like, he's like, drench my offering in water. And it creates this, like, trench of water, so it's like he's got this soggy offering, and uh, the prophets of Baal have a perfect, ready-to-combust uh, offering, and well, you can guess what happens. The prophets of Baal, they cry out to their God, oh, God, show us your power and your real, and all through the day they do it, and nothing happens. Where did their God go? Well, it's Elijah's turn, and he calls upon Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He calls upon them, and God consumes with fire his offering. And it says it not only consumes the offering, which was a bull, but the wood and the stones and the dust and the water. Elijah was not afraid of testing. He said, bring it on. My God is true and real and he will show up. So, we've got to know that not all prophets are true. Prophets, even if they claim to be from God, And we also have to know what the marks of a false prophet are. It's not just enough to know that they exist. We need to know some of the marks. And so if you would, turn to Ezekiel chapter 13 with me. If you have uh, one of these thick black ones, it's on page 887. Oh, I think I wrote that wrong. Yeah, that's not correct. Uh, but if you have a paperback, it's on 593. And that is correct. Actually, I might, you know what? I'm good. 887 on uh, the hardback and 593 on the paperback. 
Now, Ezekiel's another prophet. He's another prophet, and the context here is that um, Israel has been taken into captivity, and they're, of course, asking, where is God, and why, and when will he rescue me? And there's this group of false prophets who's, they're just promising the people, God's not going to leave us here for long. It'll just be any time now. Don't worry. God is going to return us to our land very quickly. Well, Ezekiel wasn't saying the same message. And the question, as always, well, who's hearing from God? Which prophet is hearing from God? Well, who do you think the people liked more? Ezekiel, that was saying, it's going to be a while. God's angry with us. We've rebelled against him. We've been idolatrous. Or the prophets who are telling him, don't worry, guys. You've done nothing wrong. God will fix this error, and he will return us to our land. Well, of course, the other prophets were much more popular. So read with me in chapter 13, starting in verse 1. The word of God, or the word of the Lord, came to me, that is Ezekiel. Son of man, God said, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have nothing and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals amongst ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up to the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations, dreams. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. See what he's saying? They're claiming that God has spoken to them. And God is saying, I haven't spoken to you. Stop lying about me. I did not declare anything to you. Verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore... Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. Very important point. Seen lying visions. We do not have to deny that people have seen visions when they claim to have heard from God. Why? Because, category two, there are spirits of the world who are powerful enough to create what seem to be visions from God that aren't actually. That's why we test the spirits. So people can say from other religions or other backgrounds, yeah, yeah, but I've had a vision. They might have actually had a vision, but it might have been a lying vision. Verse 9. My band, or sorry, my hand, will be against the prophets who see false visions and give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and they shall know that I am the Lord God. Verse 10, this is very important. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, quote, peace, when there is no peace, 
and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain and you, O uh, and great hailstones will fall and a stormy wind break out and then the wall falls. And then it will be said, where is the coating which you smeared on it? Here's what's happening. Whitewash. Have you heard that term? I've got a faulty wall with terrible foundation and what do I do? To please the people, I put a nice veneer on it. I fill it with stucco. I paint it. And the people say, oh, that looks great. And you say, yep, the Lord has fixed it. That's what the prophets were doing. Verse 10. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace whitewashing the wall is dangerous the wall will cause great damage if it's not fixed but instead of actually addressing the issue actually being honest they whitewash it and they tell you fixed when it is not fixed peace where there is no peace hope where there is no hope forgiveness where there is no forgiveness These are the false prophets. And it reminds me of my Volvo I had before I got my new car. Oh, I loved my Volvo. It was black. And as it began to fall apart, I purchased duct tape. Now, what color duct tape did I purchase? Silver? Black. Of course I purchased black. I didn't want anybody to know my car was being held together by duct tape because I wanted to bring Allie into my car and say, this is safe. (laughs) So I got black duct tape. I was whitewashing my car. Verse 14 says this. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be what? Laid bare. And why does God lay it bare? To prove to expose, to bring light to something that was actually broken. doesn't matter that we whitewashed it. It will be laid bare. That's the truth if it's not fixed. Now, in our day, we have false prophets that act the same way. They whitewash everything. They puff people up with vain hope. They speak only love. When actually judgment is right at the door... They are profoundly silent about repentance. Friends, don't preach hope without repentance. If you preach hope without repentance, you're whitewashing. And you're no different than the prophets of Ezekiel day. You're no different than the prophets of our own day who just whitewash everything. The problem is it's broken and it needs to be fixed from the foundation. It doesn't need a makeover. Positive thinking is not Christianity. 
Faith and hope in Jesus is Christianity. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. We put our trust in him and his cross. We ask him to fix us, and he promises to, and he's proved that it's possible through the resurrection. And so we have hope, but only through repentance. Don't preach hope without repentance. That's Christianity. Tons of hope, but it requires repentance, and it requires the cross of Christ. We need people who live and tell the truth. Do you want to be a person who tells the truth, or do you want to be a whitewasher? Being a person that tells the truth is what the world needs. We've got plenty of whitewasher. The spirit of our age is a spirit of whitewashing. The spirit of our age is a spirit of whitewashing. Jesus Christ never whitewashed. Followers of Jesus should never whitewash. God does love us. He does want the best for us. He does care about our future. But he is also the God of truth. And he sends the spirit of truth. And truth and error cannot commingle. So truth must be revealed. And the truth is that we're sinners. And the truth is that Jesus saves. That is great truth. But it's not whitewashing. Never promise hope without repentance. Never promise hope without repentance. We've got to be honest, friends, that uh, the spirit of our age is a spirit of whitewashing. And if we keep flirting with it, it will change us. It will make us impotent. It will make us no different than the world. Our message will not be a message of truth. It'll be a message of error. And I fear that probably many of us in this room, probably many Christians in this city, especially young Christians in this city, flirt with or adopt the spirit of the age, which is a spirit of error. We need to be really, 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 really honest with ourselves and who we are because here's the deal. We are fallen men and women from birth We've actually been born into a sinful nature. It's called original sin. We inherit brokenness. Theologians, we call this depravity. And it's total. And here's what I mean by total. Not that that we're the worst that we could possibly be, but it's affected every part of our life. What has it affected? It's affected our minds. It's affected our hearts. It's affected our consciousness. It's affected our intuitions. It's affected our feelings. It's affected every part of us, and so when we say things like, well, it just seems better this way, or it makes more sense that, or it just feels right, we've got to be very skeptical of ourselves because of this thing called depravity, and it's affected every part of us. So yes, we're logical, and our logic is not completely broken, but it's not perfect. So when we say, it just makes sense, we've got to ask What kind of sense? So our hearts are not as black as they can be, but they're also not functioning perfectly. And so our intuition might not be perfect. And we have to be honest with ourselves. Here's how I'll say it. Here's how I'll say it. We are not fishing with a shotgun in a kiddie pool anymore. The kiddie pool is full of trout. 
just so you know. It's more like fishing with a golf club, a ball of yarn, duct tape, and a paper clip while fishing in a class five rapid. The truth's there. The fish are there. We have the necessary tools, though they're not the best. But it takes real hard work to wade through the spirits and find true truth when the deluge is coming at us. The deluge of information and teaching and supposed truth, it's attacking our senses daily. So we have to be vigilant. We can't be lighthearted about it. We have to be serious and honest with ourselves and with each other because it's not as easy as we think it is. So what do we do? We pray, we pray, we pray, and we test our heart, our intuitions, our feelings against what? The Word of God. Because the Spirit of God inspired the Word of God. And so everything we test against this, this is why... We preach from the Bible, this is why. We teach from the Bible, this is why. We bring the Bible into our fellowship groups because without it, we're all fishing blind. But at least this gives us a little bit of help in where to look. So don't flirt with the spirit of the age because here's what happens. Let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, He says this, uh, trying to explain how we often underestimate how a rejection of God builds and consumes us. This is in his book called The Great Divorce. It begins with a grumbling mood and and yourself still distinct from the mood, perhaps even criticizing the mood, and yourself in the dark hour actually may want the mood and embrace it, and yes, you can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. There there may come a day when there is no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble going on forever like a machine. Seems to me that if we continue to flirt and adopt the spirit of our age, that there'll come a time when we no longer even recognize that we're flirting with it, that it just becomes who we are, that we just get swept into it like a machine and we become whitewashers, whitewashing everything we see, everything we hear, everything that our world throws at us, everything becomes okay. That's the spirit of our age, and if we continue to flirt with it, we might not be able to separate ourselves from it at some point. The good news is this. Here's the good news. The gospel of Jesus tells us that God doesn't leave us in our depravity, in our depraved thinking or feeling or intuitions, but that he sent his son into the world, God 
the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, the life into the world so that he could uniquely live the obedient, faithful, all-glorifying life we were meant to live, die the death of punishment for sin that we should have died and then rose from the grave three days later to a new kind of resurrected life that we now have access into. That's the good news. And for what? So that we don't have to baptize as true or completely valid every false feeling or thought or lifestyle that we come across or, or we live into, but that we might have victory over those feelings that we might have victory over our thoughts, over our habits that masquerade as angels of light and life, but are actually full of death and decay. They actually drag us down. They don't actually make us happy. And we don't have to whitewash them and say that they do because Jesus Christ came to give us actual deliverance from those things, from those false foundations. That's what he came to do. That's the good news. And so, yes, it's true that we're broken, but yes, it's true that he's fixing us. That's the gospel, guys. That's good news. And so my heart breaks when I hear a story like Bruce Jenner. Because it's obvious his feelings matter. And there's something wrong with him. He, he's not comfortable with himself, clearly. But you know what? The world is telling him that he's completely right. They're whitewashing it and they're telling him, good for you. And here's the problem with that. Maybe it's a year, maybe it's two years. I can almost guarantee you he will find himself unhappy again. And what are we going to tell him then? What if he wants to go back to being a man? We'll whitewash that and we'll say, good for you. And nobody is going to stand up and tell him what you really need is Jesus Christ. What you really need is to be born again. Who tells him the truth? God is far more gracious than whitewashing. He is far more merciful than simply promising peace where there is no peace. The spirit of our age and the Spirit of God are, are alike in one way. They're alike in one way. They accept everyone. But they are dislike in one major way. God does not leave us where we are. He has something better for us that he's got in store. And so you can accept the spirit of the age as truth, but you're missing out on the redemption, the transformation, the fullness of life, the thriving of life that God has promised to us. If you accept the spirit of our age as truth, if you accept the spirit of God as truth, everyone is accepted. Everyone, including Bruce Jenner, everyone is accepted, but yet everyone is transformed into something more than we could even imagine. Have you tested the spirits, friends? Which spirit will you embrace? Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for your spirit that you have not left us alone to figure truth and error on on our own merits, but that you've actually given us, <laughs> you've given us yourself through the spirit, that you've given us truth, that truth actually resides in this room and it's working and it's moving right now and it's opening up our eyes and our ears to know, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? God, come in the flesh. Come to save and be our Savior. Is that true? And if that's true, then the spirits who deny that cannot be true. So God, help us, open our eyes, help us to see what is true and what is false. Help us to live into the spirit of truth and avoid the spirit of error. Lord, we want to cling to your hope, but we know it takes repentance. Give us the courage to repent. In Jesus' name, amen.